All right, let's get after it. Last week we talked about Christianity. We're going to come back to this in just a minute, but Christianity is faith plus nothing equals salvation. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. We talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we looked at their founder, Charles Taze Russell, and we found out that he died as a false prophet. He had been proven a false prophet. We looked at Mormonism. Their founder was Joseph Smith. We found out that not only was he a false prophet, he said some really wild things that actually became problems for the church in subsequent years because now they just don't talk about them. It was so wild, so far out there that, that they don't even talk about uh, some of the stuff that, that Joseph Smith said. And even uh, Brigham Young, Brigham Young University, he was one of the presidents of the church, the living prophet. They, uh, they have discredited or they, uh, other religions have discredited some of the things Brigham Young has said. And so the church tries to steer clear of some of those things and talk about the living prophet today. Now, at this point, we're going to look at Islam. We said that in um, these other religions... There are several things that you have to do in order to make it to heaven. So we piled all of these things up. There's there's these tapes that you have to buy. You have to believe in if you're going to make it to heaven and you've got to earn your salvation. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, we got a pile there. Got too many sacks down in here. Mormons, we said there were at least six or seven different things that you had to do to earn salvation there. Now, we're going to look at Islam. Islam is kind of interesting because you cannot understand, oh, put them in front, thank you. You cannot understand Islam without understanding culture, specifically 7th century Arabian culture. <clears throat> Muhammad took the laws which, which governed the tribes of 7th century Arabia, and he literally transformed those laws into the laws of Allah, and he made a religious system out of them. That is why, if you think about 7th century, that's why they dress the way they do in Arab countries. Uh, there was no concept of personal liberty whatsoever. Islamic countries will not ever be um, democratic countries because true fundamentalist Islam and democracy cannot coexist. They have no idea of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, or freedom of the press. So, who started the movement? Is Muhammad. You have this on your listening guide. The founder was Muhammad. There are 21 Islamic nations today, and none of them are democracies. The more fundamentalist Islam they have uh, in their country, the more they are going to look like 7th century Arabia. Let's just talk about Muhammad for just a second. He was a camel driver until the age of 25, at which time he made the best financial decision of his life. He married a widow who was 15 years older than him, and she was rich. Pretty good plan. Don't have to do that, but it's not a bad plan. If you're a single, marry rich. Okay, that just went over like a lead balloon. Let's move on. <laughs> now, at the age of 40, he'd been living off his, his rich wife. At the age of 40, he started having these revelations or messages. What he would do is he would go up into these caves outside the city of Mecca. Now, at that time, all of the truth seekers did this. They would go up and hang out in the caves and they would meditate to receive messages. Well, he said that he started receiving messages. He wasn't sure whether they were from God or from Satan. His older, wealthy wife said, oh, they're from God. And so he started believing this and started teaching that this was revelations from God. Now, here's what 
Muslims themselves describe how he received these messages, these revelations. Uh, they said that he would shake, he would perspire and foam at the mouth, and Muslims describe these as epileptic fits. During these epileptic fits in the caves around Mecca, he would then come into face to face with an angel of light. Later, Muslims decided there's actually four different accounts of who this angel was, but now they've kind of agreed later that it was the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel gave Muhammad these messages. He wrote them down. Actually, he didn't write them down. Um, they were written down years later because Muhammad was uneducated and probably couldn't write himself. Years later, these were written down and it became the Quran, the holy book of Islam. Uh, his main message was that there is one God. And, and as Christians, we agree there is one God, but that's kind of the only place that we agree with them. Because this one God, and you'll see in just a minute, that he's very different from the God that, that Christians serve. This one God was very distant and people were his slaves. That's where you get the idea. The term Islam means submission. And then when you say that someone is of the Muslim faith, Muslim means one who submits. And so if you are a if you are a slave of God, your only option is to obey that God. Now, at first, Muhammad tried to appeal to both Jews and Christians because they were both thriving in his area at the time in Arabia, 7th century. So he called himself a prophet to appeal to the Old Testament Jews because prophets came. So he called himself a prophet. The, the Christians, though, they were they were in tune with the New Testament, which was when Jesus revealed himself. And so he called himself an apostle to try to reach out to them. Well, when both groups said, ah, we don't believe anything that you have to say, it's a bunch of garbage. Well, then he in turn rejected them and he started receiving messages, revelations um, after that. And some of them had to do with the Jews and some of them had to do with Christians. One of the revelations he got from God, and this is in the Koran. All right. The things I'm telling you right now, they are in their holy book. One of them was the revelation was as caravans are traveling through Arabia, you are to loot and steal from them. And it's OK if you kill them. So as they came through, they'd see somebody, they would go kill all the men, take all of their riches. And, and that was OK because Allah wills it. When it comes to Jews, one time he had a thousand Jewish men brought before him and he had them beheaded because Allah wills it. Seems like a very convenient thing if you are wanting to rule a certain area to have messages that come from Allah and your only option is to submit to obey those messages. So in the Quran and in the in uh, Muslim history, we have recorded that that Muhammad was involved in 66 different battles and he killed tens of thousands of people. All right. Now, that's the founder. What do they believe about heaven? Well, there are five pillars of the faith. And I'll, these are on your listening guide as well. The first is reciting the creed. And you probably you may have heard the term the Shahada. That's the creed. And here's what they have to say several times during the day. There is only one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, you don't just recite this once. You recite this constantly throughout the day. One God and Muhammad is his prophet. The second pillar is uh, the five daily prayers. And I'm going to go ahead and put five of them out here because there are 17 different prescribed prayers that you have to pray through five different times during the day. You have to go through a ceremonial washing before you are prepared to pray. Then you have to kneel and fall prostrate facing the holy city of Mecca. 
Right. This is part of salvation. This is not just part of the belief system. This is part of how you get to heaven. All right. There's a third pillar. The third is almsgiving. Now, the cynics among you are saying, yeah, it always comes down to money. All these all these religious people always come down to money. Well, what they are required to do is give 2.5 percent of their estate to charitable contributions. And some of you are going, wow, that's better than Christianity. We talk about 10 percent. But OK, just just uh, 2.5 percent there. Now, you've probably heard about the next one, which is fasting. And you all remember when. Uh, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon played for Houston. In the uh, ninth month of the lunar calendar, Islamic lunar calendar, there is a month called Ramadan. And it is a fast where the whole month a good Muslim will refrain from food, drink and sexual relations from sun up till sundown. After sundown, watch out. Um, and and I, actually, there were there are many Muslims who will get up very early in the morning so that they can eat and sustain themselves during the day or they wait until uh, till the daylight hours are over and then. Have a good time. Number five, the fifth pillar. This one is called pilgrimage. You are expected at least once during your lifetime, no matter what your your financial status is, you are expected to travel to the holy city of Mecca. Now, go back to seventh century Arabia and you can see how this would be a financial boon for the for the folks, the business folks in Mecca. Right. The religious system, you've got a whole bunch of folks. And this is this is actually the fastest growing religion in the world. Like eight hundred million Muslims, you're required one time, at least during your lifetime to go to Mecca. Now, if you do all of this stuff, you might get to heaven. Because only Allah knows and only Allah decides who goes to heaven. Now, there is one more and you've heard of this one. This used to be required. It has mellowed some and now actually it's coming back. It's called jihad. Anybody heard that term? Jihad is holy war. Now, the early converts in Muslim in in Muhammad's time and, and immediately following that, they believed that they were they were duty bound to Allah to murder anyone who would not accept the Muslim faith. The submission to the one true God. Now, let's look very quickly at um, at six beliefs. One is that there's only one God named Allah. Now, there are three world religions that, that practice monotheism. Mono means one God. Those three world religions are Christianity, Judaism and Muslims. However, even though they started off with monotheism, if you go to the Quran and you begin to read it, you'll see that there are multiplicities of gods. And actually, Allah started as a tribal God. Uh, every tribe that existed at that time had their own God. They had symbols of their own God. The symbol for Allah was this black stone that was probably a meteorite and the crescent moon. So Allah started off as the moon God. That fell to earth as this stone. And you'll see in, in, in uh, Islam, if you study any of it, that they actually have the stone. It's in the in the holy city of Mecca. It's not in very good shape because things have happened to it through the years, but it's, it's enshrined. And you also see the crescent moon all the time. That's where all that comes from. That was the tribal God of uh, Muhammad in the seventh century. Again, it's just imposed upon this century. 
Now, the God of Judaism and the God of Christianity are the same God. The God of, uh, of the Muslims is a different God. Second thing is angels. Angels are servants of God and they all have different ranks. And Gabriel, the one who supposedly appeared to Muhammad, he has the highest rank. Now, here's where it's interesting. Muslims believe that every Muslim has two recording angels that follow them around. We actually talked about doing a video of this. It would have been funny. Um, two, rank, two angels. One angel records your good deeds. The other angel records your bad deeds. Can you just see that? There's all kinds of possibilities um, for, for that video. Now, the, sec- the third thing then is holy books. The Quran is the holiest book of Islam, and it's the final revelation of God to man. And it's higher than everything else. They believe in the Bible, but they believe that, that Christians have uh, corrupted the Bible. So they won't talk to you about your version of the Bible. They also recognize the law of Moses, the Psalms, the first four bu- books of the New Testament. But they think that we have corrupted them. The prophets. This one's interesting. Allah has spoken through the years to through one hundred and twenty four thousand Prophets, most of them you've never heard of, but some of them are biblical characters such as Noah, Moses and Jesus. So they'll agree that that those are prophets. But Muhammad is the latest and the greatest. Number five is they believe in predestination. All things. Here's where we differ with them. All things, both good and evil, come from Allah. And you don't question. Christians don't believe that. Number six, day of judgment. This is the terrible day on which those whose good works outweigh their bad works get to go to paradise, and paradise is all about sensuality. And really, it's more focused on men than it is on women, um, because you get, you get the perpetual virgins in, in your sensual paradise. But woe to you if your bad works outweigh your good works, because you get judged and thrown into a place called hell. Now, let's look at the major differences. Allah versus God. Muslims believe that Allah is distant and he is virtually unknowable. Really, he's not even interested in you. They teach that you and I are really good and we just have to work to overcome our sins. But the God of the Bible, Psalm 68, 5 says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. If you don't have a father. You know that this is very personal to you, this verse. God will be my father. That, and he's not talking about the workaholic father that, that is, is so prevalent in America. He will be a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. That's the God of the Bible, not some distant holy person that doesn't want to know you. Uh, James 127 says pure and lasting religion in the sight of God, our father means that we must care for orphans and widows and their troubles and refuse to let the world corrupt us. Again, you see the tenderness of God. He wants he wants the people that can't be uh, defended. He wants Christians to defend them. And God says, I myself will defend them. Not not a distant God. Um, Allah. The God, the, the God of Muslims does not love evildoers. The God of the Bible, Romans 5, 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Now, the Muslims say that Allah is neither physical nor spirit. Jesus Christ said, John four twenty four, for God is spirit. <laughs> so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Allah can change his revelations. This is a doctrine called abrogation. Way I read more about abrogation than I ever care to admit. And and here's the gist of it. There are contradictions in the Quran, major contradictions in the Quran. So the way that they they uh, uh, explain that is God changes his mind. He abrogates. So the problem is what's going to keep God from changing his mind again? 
Why can't he change? If he's already changed Muhammad's um, messages and they are supposedly Muhammad's the latest, greatest prophet ever. He's better than Jesus. Then what's going to keep him to change him from from changing him again? I, I don't understand it. The Bible says, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1, 17, whatever is good and perfect comes to us from God above who created all heaven's lights. Unlike them, he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. So you got to decide, am I going to am I going to believe in the God of the Bible or the God of Muslims from this founder who, when he died, he had 12 wives and two concubines. And he had revelations that said he could get rich and, and take other people's property and wives. OK, anyway, Jesus, there's a different Jesus to the Muslim. Jesus is only one of one hundred and twenty four thousand prophets. And and uh, Muhammad is greater than him. But here from the Koran again, from their holiest teaching, here's what they say about Jesus. Jesus did miracles. The Quran says Muhammad did not. The Quran says Jesus was sinless. The Quran says Muhammad sinned and needed to be forgiven. The Quran says that Jesus was born of a virgin. Muhammad was not. Jesus did miracles. Muhammad did not. What makes him greater? It's simply the fact that he's the last in the line of the prophets is what they say makes him greater. I don't understand that. Muslims do not believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe that Judas took his place. So if he didn't die on the cross for our sins, then there's no reason for him to rise bodily. They teach that he does not rise bodily. But here's what Jesus himself said in the Bible. Matthew 26. For this is my blood, which seals the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out to forgive the sins of many. Paul, one of the greatest preachers other than Jesus, wrote half of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, as the scripture said. So who's telling the truth, the Bible or Muhammad, who had epileptic fits in a cave and saw an angel of light later named Gabriel? I mean, I'm just I'm telling you, this is how my mind works. And so that's what I'm thinking. Holy Spirit, because I've said all of these religions have a different um, God, different Jesus, different Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit in, in Islam is the angel Gabriel. Where do you ever find that in the Bible? Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and Gabriel. No, the Holy Spirit. Allah required the works of Muhammad in order for us to uh, understand the complete works of judgment on man. It's all about judgment. Horrible day of judgment is coming. Christianity. God sent Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do so that he pours out his grace upon us. There is no grace uh, in the Muslim faith. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Different God, different Jesus, different Holy Spirit. Now, there's one other belief system that we're going to look at today, and it is Catholicism. And I just got to say from the get go of all the belief systems that we've looked at, Catholics have more in common with us than any other. Let me give you some of the things that that we agree on. Uh, let's see. Catholics believe that Jesus was God's son born of a virgin. They believe that he was sinless and that his death on the cross paid for our sins. And one day Jesus is coming back. Woo! We are in total agreement there. Those are good things. And what that means is there are people in Catholic churches who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone to save them, 
who will be in heaven. The problem that I have with the Catholic Church, you'll see in just a minute, is what they have piled on top of the Bible. The Bible is no longer enough. They have piled all of these traditions on and they have made traditions equal. Many of those traditions are equal with the Bible. And that's where I have a huge problem, because the more you pile on, the more people who do not read the Bible don't understand what is in the Bible and what's not. And in fact, Catholics are never even encouraged to read their Bibles. They're just supposed to put their faith in the Pope and in the church. Let's look at some of those things very quickly. And and, in, in this sense, you can, although there are Christians in Catholicism, I do not believe there are Christians in any of these others because it's a different Christ. At least this Christ is the same one in, in Catholicism. Here, I want you to write this down. Here's, here's, the, here's the formula for Christianity. Faith. F-A-I-T-H. Faith plus zero. Nothing. Faith plus zero equals salvation. Every other belief system, it's faith plus stuff. And if you want to be more specific, good works. Good works. Faith plus good works equals salvation. And even in the Catholic Church, that's what they believe. Faith alone is not enough. You must do some good works. Let's look at some of those things. In 1545, Catholics had been around at least 1,200 years by then. In 1545, at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church declared for the first time that tradition was now to be equal with the Bible. Thinking people will go. That's dangerous. Because what if I come to be pope or I come to be on one of these councils and I decide that I want to do something that um, that benefits me. If I speak it and the pope cannot sin. It wasn't until the 1800s that they declared that the that the pope has no sin. If the pope says something and it is equal with the Bible, then I have to believe it. So in, in the 1500s, that's what happened. They said that tradition is equal in authority with the Bible. Let me give you some unbiblical traditions. The church was built on Peter, who is called the first pope. Okay, that's, they'll say that it goes back to him, and, and we could spend several weeks looking at that passage where Jesus said, Upon uh, Peter, I will build this, this church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a play on words. He wasn't saying on you, Peter. He said, Rock. And he, and he was, it's just a little play on words. Jesus was very clever with his words, but anyway, we won't get on that. Another unbiblical doctrine is the doctrine of purgatory after death to purge or cleanse a person from their sins. Prayers to Mary and dead saints to mediate on our behalf. Images to kneel before and pray to. Confession to a priest for forgiveness of sins. And they teach that salvation comes only through the Catholic Church. We'll look at that in a second. They teach that the bread and wine actually become the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's called transubstantiation. We don't believe that. Um, they, they teach that you must do penance for your sins. You must do works to overcome your sins. And you must um, uh, confess to a priest. Worship of Mary, holy water, and canonization of dead saints. None of those come from the Bible. Well, let's look at how you get to heaven. In the Catholic Church. Now, on the on the surface, it looks good because they say, well, you got to believe that Jesus Christ was sinless and he died for our sins. But that's not enough, because in 1302, Pope Boniface, the eighth said, I quote, 
for every human creature, it is altogether necessary to salvation that he be subject to the Roman pontiff. Who is the Roman pontiff? The Pope. So how is a person saved? You got to obey the Pope. So Jesus is not enough. You got to obey the Pope. Now, in the 1960s at Vatican II, Vatican Council II, the church said this, and this one I think we got on the screen. This sacred synod teaches that the church is necessary for salvation. Whoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by God through Jesus Christ, would refuse to enter her or remain in her, could not be saved. So how do you get saved in the Catholic Church? Believing in Jesus by following the Pope and by Catholic Church membership. All right. They've just added that at Vatican II back in the 1960s. That was in the last 50 years. Now, what that means, though, if you look at some of the other declarations from councils and popes, not only is membership necessary, but following the traditions is necessary to be saved. Then there's a there's a fifth one called purgatory. I mentioned it just just saying, let me give you the gist of purgatory. Here it is. Catholics believe that some people are not bad enough to go to hell, but they're not good enough to go to heaven. So they came up without a, without a single reference in scripture. They came up at this council and they said that that uh, there's this place called purgatory. Um, and so if you go to purgatory, you have to pay for your sins that you didn't pay for on earth. All right, you with me? So um, this this actually produced the system of selling of indulgences. Have you all heard that term? You remember that back from from your uh, history classes? Selling of indulgences. Um, the fact that the pope stated this made it true because you've got to follow the pope. Now, purgatory. Here's here's the way it works. You have a dead relative who you want to help spend less time in purgatory so that they can get to heaven. So you have to have masses said by one of, by a priest. How do you get masses said in the Catholic Church? You pay for it. So let's say you want a certain number of masses said. You pay that. Let's just, just for argument's sake say it's five hundred dollars. You get five hundred dollars. So much time would be taken off that person's um, time in purgatory. So it's time off for good behavior, I guess, of living relatives, not the, not the dead person. But if you if you needed more masses said, bigger masses, more time taken off, you would give more money. Say like five thousand dollars in order to shorten the stay of your your relative in purgatory. If you've read the Bible, have you seen that anywhere in the Bible? No. The fact that a pope said it is what made it um, Made it last, made it made it a doctrine of the church equal to the Bible in, in authority. So you've got believe in Jesus, follow the traditions of the church, become a member of the church, follow the pope or help someone out of purgatory. There is at least one more way that you can get to heaven. If you travel around the world and especially in third uh, world countries, what you'll notice is in abject poverty. I mean, you'll see in villages and towns, people that have absolutely nothing. Right in the middle of that village or town, you'll see an immaculate Catholic church with gold ornaments, unbelievable stuff. You want to know why that is? Because the Catholic church teaches, and this is one of these, these last things about heaven. The Catholic church teaches that in poverty and suffering, we discover salvation. That is why everywhere you see the Catholic Jesus... He's suffering on the cross. You see a Catholic Jesus in one of only two ways. Either he's hanging on the cross, suffering, and he looks emaciated. He looks, he looks bad because in poverty and suffering, that's how you gain salvation. 
Or you see him as an infant in Mary's arms. That's the only way you see him. Christians, we believe the cross is empty. We believe the tomb is empty. But they teach that poverty and suffering help you discover salvation. And that's why they are taught that if you don't suffer in this life enough, then you're going to have to suffer in purgatory. That's why you'll see people crawling on their knees across cobblestone streets to get to the... the uh, Catholic Church in certain places. I don't know if you've seen any of that. I have. They're bleeding because some of them will come for miles and they believe that they are suffering to pay for their sins so that they can get into heaven. Again, that is not a biblical doctrine. And we're just going to look at one real quickly, one major difference in the Catholic Church. There are many, but this one is Mary. Let me tell you quickly some things that they teach about Mary. They teach the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That means she was born in 1854. Pope Pius IX said that Mary was born without sin. She doesn't have a sin nature. That can't be found in the Bible. They also teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. What that means is she remained a virgin her entire life. Let me just give you some Bible verses that contradict that. Matthew 1:19. Joseph, her fiance, being a just man, decided to break the engagement quietly so as not to disgrace her publicly. And as he considered this, he fell asleep and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary, for the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Skipping down to verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded. He brought Mary home to be his wife, but she remained a virgin until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Now, if you go a little bit further in Matthew chapter 13 and just use logic here says that he returned, being Jesus, he returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogues, everyone was astonished and said, where does he get this wisdom and his miracles? He's just a carpenter's son. We know Mary, his mother and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. What makes him so great? How do you get brothers and sisters if Mary was a perpetual virgin? I'm just using logic here. You know, well, unless they were all born. Anyway, okay. 1950, Pope Pius XII declared what is called the Assumption of Mary. The Assumption of Mary teaches that Mary was resurrected body and soul to heaven and is now the Queen of Heaven. 1950, mind you, that's when that was declared. Most disturbing to me, and this, this really, when I read it, I was like, no way. Mary has been elevated to co-redeemer and co-mediator with Christ. Pope Leo XII said, no one can approach Christ except through the mother, the queen of heaven, Mary. Well, let's look at what the Bible says. First Timothy 2, 5. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and people. He is the man, Jesus Christ. How many mediators? There's no co-mediator mentioned. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No mention of Mary, not Mary, not the Pope, not the saints, not the church, not the sacraments and not the priest. There is one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus Christ. Peter, the one who knew him the best, who was supposed to be, according to Catholics, the first Pope. Look what he says. Acts chapter four. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. Now, if Peter was the first pope and he was God's voice on earth and the pope is infallible, then what Peter said should go, right? Pete, none, none of the disciples, Peter, nobody else, none of them ever prayed to Mary, mentioned anything about Mary. Every one of them suffered and most of them died painful deaths, martyrs' deaths, 
for believing and teaching publicly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose again on the third day. And we're going to preach that no matter what you do to us. And so people killed him. No mention of Mary. Every belief system that we've looked at so far could have worked for Avis. You know what Avis's theme is? We try harder. You take every one of these belief systems other than Christianity. Notice this empty spot here. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. But Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Islam, Catholicism, they teach that it's faith plus all this other stuff. Good works will get you to heaven. They ought to have this banner. They ought to wear the button when they get up and do their services. They ought to have the banner on the outside of their church. They ought to have the banner up here at the worship center. We try harder. We serve harder. And we might make it to heaven. But anything that teaches you that faith plus anything equals salvation is an unbiblical doctrine. It's the difference in do versus done. Religion, and these are all religions... And I say this all the time. I'm hoped, I hope to just declare it real quickly here, very concisely, the difference between Christianity and religion. These are all religions. Religions are based on what you do. You must do a certain set of things in order to gain salvation. You've got to go through these doctrines. You've got to do these different things. You've got to believe these different things. And, and that's what religion is spelled D-O. What you do in order to gain favor from a God who's mad at you. But thankfully, Christianity is spelled done, D-O-N-E, because it is based on the principle that God did for something what we could not do for ourselves. It is already paid for. God looked down and, and he sent Jesus to live the perfect life you and I could never live. He sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay for the sins, the debt that you and I owed for the things I had done. The things you had done. Christianity has already been paid for. And see, when, when you're doing all of these things, it's like being a salesman who has a quota. But he's never been told what that quota was. You never know when you reach it. In all of these religions, you don't know when you've done enough. Christianity is based on what's already been done. And, and here's the thing. Romans 3.23 says... All have sinned and, and all fall short of God's glorious standard. That means we can never do enough. So God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Christianity spelled done. Religion tries to change you from the outside in. Christianity changes you from the inside out. And the cool thing is, when you ask Christ to forgive you of your sins and be the leader of your life, the Bible says he adopts you into his family. And he changes you from the inside out. If you are an honest sinner, which we try to be <laughs> brutally honest around here, you'll say, I know I can't do that stuff. I know I'm not good enough. And I know I'm going to hell unless someone who is good enough pays the price. So your only option is. I stand before God and I say, look at all I've done. Let me into heaven. Or you say, I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough. Because there will be a time you stand before a holy God. The Bible says, 
We all will stand, actually we'll kneel before a holy God. It says that the name of Jesus, every head shall bow, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you'll, you'll bow, you'll kneel. And then one of two things will happen. If you have asked Christ to be the forgiver of your sins, the leader of your life, then it says your name's written in the book of life. Jesus is the only one that can open it. When he opens it, Doug Washburn, come on in. Your reservation is based on what Jesus already has done. But if you have not done that, he looks in there and then he looks up and he says, depart from me for I never knew you. And I, I don't want anybody to, to be in that position. And everybody who follows these other things. Now, there are some Catholics who, who believe in Christ and, and I believe they'll be in heaven. But if you do all of this stuff and you and you neglect what the Bible teaches, you will bust the gates of hell wide open. So you got a choice to make. You can try to be good enough or you can admit I'm not. Would you take your registration cards and fill those out?